Hey everybody, this is Father Chris Rodriguez from Trinity Episcopal Church in Vera Beach, Florida. We are doing our first live stream today, resuming our series we did in Lent on the screw tape letters. And of course, our series was uh, hindered by this uh, uh, coronavirus. So now we're going to pick that back up for the next few weeks and pick up where we left off and hopefully work our way through this. So this is our first live stream that we've done so far with our educational materials here at Trinity. So far, as you know, we've been doing live stream on Sunday mornings uh, for the Sunday Mass, which has been very well received. This is our first, uh, first swing at uh, education online. And, and my hope is, despite all, through all this, is that our, if we can get this live stream stuff down well, that even when we're off season or if people are traveling around or whatever, you can st or share with your friends that don't even live in Vero Beach some of the educational materials we have available to us here and that would be a really cool thing. So uh, there are a few people here in the room, uh, just less than 10, <laughs> we, and they are socially distanced. Um, there are a few people here today. Um, my plan is, and this may change based upon suggestions which come from you online or that come from the group here. Uh, here's what I'm planning to do. I'll, give you, I'll lay it out for you, then we'll pray and we'll go ahead and launch. What I want to do, I think, is go through all five letters today, letters 14 through 18, five. We're gonna be going through those letters. I'm gonna go through and lecture on them. I'm gonna ask some questions that I've already written that are available to you on the website there. I'm gonna ask those questions. And what I want you to do if you're at home or if you're here in the uh, studio is you can ask questions online if you're remote or you can ask questions in-house here. Father Josh is available with a microphone. He'll bring it over. We can ask the question and then we're in good shape. So as I'm going through the lecture, if you've got a question, please post it on the Facebook page. Uh, we've got some folks in the back, uh, Alex from Ironside and Father Gritter are monitoring that and they'll just yell it out, right? <laughs> and we'll go from there as the questions come in. So I hope that's clear. Um, any constructive feedback on how this goes today would be really helpful because this is our first try at this. And so we're gonna do the best we can by God's grace. So before we start, let's go ahead and start with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege of coming together, even though it is uh, virtual. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of C.S. Lewis, for his authoring of this book, The Screwtape Letters. Open our minds and our hearts to hear what this book has to say to us. Help us to engage with it with a, with a critical, open mind to uh, wrestle with it, to be consoled by it, to learn from it, and to, be, to grow in faith in your son Jesus through it. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, let's, look, let's start with letter number 14. This is, I think, uh, we were just mentioning a minute ago, Marilyn DeSalt said to me a moment ago that this is the key to the whole book. Uh, this is actually a really important chapter, I think, because Screwtape talks about the danger of humility. And I have in my notes here, which the, uh, the notes I'm reading from, the discussion questions are available on the website in that sidebar up to the right-hand side. It's a PDF that you can scroll through. Let me read through my notes there, and then we'll go ahead and dive into this, uh, this letter and unpack it a little bit and then ask some questions. So, in letter number 14, Wormwood, Wormwood reports to Screwtape that his patient has discovered true humility. And... And Screwtape advises Wormwood that this is a serious situation because uh, the man, humility, as you may or may not know, humility is the 
is the root of all virtue, right? Whereas pride is the root of all sin, humility, which is the opposite, opposite of pride, is the root of all, uh, all virtue. And so, uh, so, so Screwtape actually does something very clever. He says to Wormwood, hey, Wormwood, uh, if, if your patient has really discovered humility, and I'll get into that in a minute, what that means, uh, don't lose your cool, <laughs> right? This is a dangerous situation. This is serious because humility is dangerous ground from a, from a demon's perspective. He says, but here's a little trick you can try. I remember the first time I heard this, I, uh, it resonated with me, uh, and, I, and I'll show you why in a second. He says, uh, Screwtape says to Wormwood, look, he says, if your patient uh, becomes humble, <laughs> draw his attention to the fact that he's humble, Right? And then draws attention to the fact that he's humble, make him go, holy smokes, I'm humble, and then make him proud of his own humility. Right? That's how the devil works. Everything is turned upside down. And, and then he says, and then if the man is able to recognize that he's humble and he's proud of his humility, make him proud of the fact that he's trying to not be proud of his humility. See how that works? <laughs> it's, a, it's an endless spiral, and it's how demons work right? They're, uh, how they work always in every circumstance is to take what's true and twist it enough to make it uh, so, I don't know, distracting and so maddening that you can't possibly think your way out of it. So he says, uh, C.S. Lewis says, um, if this man thinks he's being humble, draw his attention to that fact and make him proud of his own humility. And then Lewis goes into, uh, Screwtape goes into this idea of what is what is humility? If you were all here online, I'd ask you a the first question, and go ahead and answer it if you want online, and Father Josh will, will monitor those. But what does it mean to actually be humble? That's actually a really, really good question. It's, humility is the key virtue of all other virtues. It is the key to the Christian walk. It is the, the key to everything else, humility, right? Um, what does it actually mean? And Lewis actually points out something. And again, his, his illustration is a little dated. This was written back in 1943 or 41, right in there, I can't remember. But his illustration is a little bit dated, but it's a, a legitimate illustration. He says, most people think of humility as, I think he says, pretty women trying to think they're ugly and smart men thinking they're stupid. Forgive the anachronism. But the idea being that for most people, humility is trying to pretend you're something that you really aren't. It's trying to force this sort of false sense of unworthiness upon a person. And that's not real humility, is it? It's not. A real humility is not, not trying to make yourself feel bad or feel guilt. I mean, a lot of people actually think that Christianity is all about guilt. That's not true at all. I mean, maybe for some people it is. But biblically speaking, that's not, that's not at all the case. That real humility is not, you know, trying to feel bad about yourself and trying to feel like you're a loser or a jerk. You might be a loser or a jerk, but, but the point is not to focus on that necessarily as the root of humility, but rather, as Lewis points us out, and I think this is so helpful, this idea of, of self-forgetfulness. And uh, what does that actually mean? Well, he actually goes through and he, and he unpacks this. This is the quote I have on here, and then I'll dig into this for a moment. Um, he says that, he, that real humility is this idea of being self-forgetful. He says the person... The person, the, the patient in this case, may know that they're good at something, but a really humble person would be just as happy at something if, if somebody else did it. 
That's a really good definition of self-forgetfulness, right? In other words, you can be as a Christian, and we all are, right? God gifts us in different ways. God gives us different strengths and different weaknesses. I will never be a good basketball player, right? <laughs> I'm a half-decent speaker on a good day, but I'll never be a good basketball player. I know that. But, what, but God, the, the whole point of being self-forgetful is, is two things. is to recognize that the, the giftings that you do have come from God. It's a gift given, right? And then secondly, you as a Christian are called to exercise these gifts, right, to the upbringing of the God who made you. And so if you get that in your mind, you can actually go, like a lot of the medieval um, uh, builders did, they would build these great cathedrals and they would put on there, you know, to the glory of God. In other words, it wasn't so much that they were trying to prove themselves in pride. Real humility is, well, this is what God has given me, has is empowered me to do and gifted me to do. I'm going to use it to his glory, and then I'm going to go to bed. And I would be just as happy if somebody else did it. That's a really, I don't know, maybe that, does that resonate with you all? I mean, that was a really, for me, a helpful uh, illustration of humility. Because I think that the problem, the danger is, if you find somebody as a Christian who is, in fact, really good at something, whether they're a good uh, financial manager, or they're a good educator, or a good senior warden, or a good whatever it might be, whatever the thing is somebody's gifted in, I mean, for crying out loud, they should use that thing. It doesn't make them arrogant. It doesn't make them prideful, provided that they do it with the right intention. And that is, God has given me this gift to use, and I will use it to his glory. Make sense? That's real humility. And that's why, that is why humility is so dangerous from the demon's perspective, from Wormwood and Screwtape's perspective. Humility is so dangerous because once a person recognizes that their heart is focused on the Lord, um, that's really dangerous from a demon's perspective because that means a person's heart has turned towards him. And let me give you this quote, and I've got a few questions, and if you have any questions online, feel free to type, uh, type them in and we'll, we'll run through them. Um, here's the quote here. The enemy, God, wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad and having done it than he would have been if it had been done by someone else. Isn't that cool? So uh, when Marilyn mentioned earlier this was the key to the whole book, I think she's onto something there. I think you're right. Because humility is the ultimate safeguard against pride. It's, it's, it's the antagonist to pride. And having a, a real sense of humility and also confidence in the gifting that God has given you, I think is a, is a really powerful combina combination. So uh, a couple questions. First thing, what does it mean to be humble? Well, according to Lewis, this idea is being humble is self-forgetfulness. -forget Knowing the gifts you've been given and perhaps the things you aren't good at, you know, being okay with that, being clear about that, but then using those gifts, uh, or lack thereof if you don't have them, not going there, uh, using those gifts as a way to give glory to God. And if you think about it, um, somebody made an illustration once in a book somewhere about uh, a painting, right? So in, in one sense, you and I, well, in, in a very real sense, all of us are made in God's image. We are all made in God's image, Scripture says, and we are all given different gifts and different capabilities. And so when a person sees what you've done well, it should give glory to God your Father because he is the one who designed you. So that's the first, um, that's the first idea there. Uh, secondly, uh, what, what, do you th what do you think most people consider... Humility. I mean, I think actually, in my opinion, most people don't even think about humility. Do you think so? 
I don't know. That's an open question. I mean, does anybody ever say to you, use the word humility in day-to-day -day conversation? In my circles, my non-Christian friends, not really so much. But what people really um, recoil at, rightly, is arrogance, right? Pride, which is the antagonist, the opposite of humility. That's kind of easy to spot, and it's off-putting to anybody, Christian or not. Um, so so what, do most, what do you think most people consider to be humility? What do you think it would be? Anybody, is there any, any comments online or anything? What might somebody consider to be humility from a worldly perspective? I would say false modesty. I would say self-deprecation, you know, poor me, oh, I can't do anything right. That's, not, that's actually not humility. That's actually pride. You think about it like this. If you're somebody who's always beating yourself up, oh, I can't do this, I'm terrible at this, I'm terrible at this, that's actually not humility. That's actually pride in reverse. It's a focusing on yourself and saying, I'm not good enough. Well, maybe you shouldn't focus on yourself at all, right, in your failures or your successes. And then the third point here, and then Father Josh, I think, has a question for me. Um, why, is humility, why is humility so important for the Christian walk? Why is humility the foundational principle of the Christian walk? What I mean by the Christian walk, if you don't know that, what that means, uh, the Christian walk means, you know, as you go along as a Christian and you grow in your faith, why is humility so important? Anybody have any idea why you think that would be? Okay, so yes, that, our, that humility reminds us that our gifts come from God, right? Not, and not only that, I would add, but also that we are, we are obligated to use them for his glory, right? What else might, what else might be, uh, why is humility so important to the Christian walk? Yeah. That's a good question. Marilyn says, do I, as you go along the Christian walk and, you get, and somebody compliments you on whatever it might be, right? and you begin to receive accolades and praises for certain things, where is that line, right? Where does, where does, how, if I'm reading you right, is that a slippery slope? And I would submit to you, yes, it is, because the devil is awfully crafty, as we know. Here's a, an idea for you to think about that just popped into my mind that I saw somebody do about 20 years ago, and I, I picked it up myself, and it works. Somebody will say to me, uh, it could be anything, you know, hey, Father, good sermon. If you've ever said that to me, some of you have, some of you haven't, uh, hey, Father, good sermon, the next words out of my mouth will always be, praise God. And if you've heard me, you know that. I've said it. And that's not, that's, that's not a show. That's not me trying to be, you know, falsely, you know, feign humility. That's where my heart is, right? And I think that's to your, kind of to your point. No matter what it is you do, if someone says, hey, man, good job on, on whatever, you know, hey, praise God. That, because that's where that praise belongs. That's where that... That's where the credit goes, you know? And I think that's a, for me, and I learned this from somebody else by example, for me, praise God, as a res response to somebody giving you a, uh, a, a, an accolade is a, is a healthy way. Um, anybody else have anything about why is humility so important? I do have, I had one other, um, I don't think I have anything oh, else. I have a question. Yes, sir. Question yeah. about humility. Um, yeah, because the Christian, yes, because the Christian walk, right, once you become a Christian, it's not like one and done, right? The Christian walk is a process. It's called, the fancy word is sanctification, right? Becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like the old person you were before. Um, it's a process, right? And to your point, Father Gritter, uh, humility is the source for going, wow, I need, to, I need to put this behind me and be more like Christ and less like my, the old person that I was. And actually, Lewis even talks about this a little bit in the book. It's a sort of a side point. But he says in here, uh, he really, uh, this is in paragraph uh, two, uh, four, I think, 
uh, Screwtape says to Wormwood, you know, he, God, really loves these hairless bipeds he created. <laughs> it's hilarious to me, I don't know. Uh, and, and what he says was, and then what Screwtape goes on to say is, you know, once a person begins to grow in humility, they begin to realize that they were actually more and more like themselves all along. In other words, the more that humility actually makes you more and more aware of the fact that God loves you and the gifts he places in your life. That's certainly where my heart is. And I think for most people that have grown in humility, which for me was not an easy thing to do, and it is for nobody, you begin to become more aware of God's gifts in your life. So any other comments or questions? Yeah. Right, let me, let me comment, because you if you're online, you can't hear Marilyn's comment. Marilyn's comment was essentially, if I can paraphrase a bit, Screwtape has committed heresy because he admits that God loves humanity. And actually, this, that's a good point. And underlying the entire book of Screwtape, you know, the question is, why does the devil hate humanity in the first place? It's a very good question. Uh, Screwtape's point, or, or C.S. Lewis's point in the whole book, is that demons being pure spirits look at us as being hairless bipeds with contempt. Right? And that's why when Screwtape says he really, he really does love these hairless bipeds, he's saying that it's part of the reason why, according to Lewis, the demons uh, rebelled against God in the first place, because God had this crazy idea to not only, not only make hairless bipeds like you and I uh, in his image, but actually, in the birth of his son, become one himself. It's astounding. That's another whole thread. All right, so uh, letter number 14. You guys ready? Letter, um, letter number 14. This one is about um, the idea of the war. Remember, this, this book was written uh, right during uh, World, in the early stages of World War II. And if you recall, back in one of the earlier letters, uh, uh, Wormwood, complains, Wormwood complains to Screwtape, oh my gosh, they've gone to war. Isn't this a great opportunity for us? And Screwtape says, you know, hang on, boy. Don't get too carried away, because when you have a war, people are, their minds are drawn towards uh, ultimate things, right? A, you may get killed, and B, they're drawn towards ultimate things, death, right? And also to ideas, if you remember. So it can be drawn to the, the ideas. And once people are thinking about ideas, big ideas, you know, uh, uh, liberty, freedom, justice, once someone's brain goes there, Screwtape says, you're on God's ground. You're on dangerous ground. Because now these humans, who we want to keep lulled at all times and sleepy at all times, now they're actually thinking through stuff. You don't want them doing that, right? So that's why, when, if you remember back to whatever letter it was, Wormwood's all excited about this war, and Screwtape's like, yeah, hang on, Sonny. This is not going to bear as much fruit as you think. But this is letter number 15. We come back to this war again. And uh, Wormwood says, hey, Screwtape, or Wormwood, uh, must relay back to screw tape that there's a lull in the war. I don't know what historically what part of time this was, but there's a, a lull in the Europe in the world in World War II, and um, screw tape advises Wormwood to focus the patient's mind. This is actually a really really good chapter on worry. It's a really good chapter on worry and fear, so being stuck in the past and being stuck in the future. This is this, this chapter 15 is all about. You all have heard me say before that worry is trying to solve a problem that has not yet occurred. You've heard me say that before, right? This chapter unpacks that even more deeply. So, for example, what Screwtape says to Wormwood, hey, look, man, uh, keep the patient's mind, this is in paragraph uh, two, keep the patient's mind 
on, there, there, there's two periods of time that God wants humanity focused on. This is a cool thing to think about. There's only two periods of time God wants you and I to focus on. Eternity and the, and the present, right? Why is that? Well, because eternity is our goal, right? Everything we do at the present is with eternity in mind, right? Those are the only two periods of time God wants us to think about. Now, let me challenge you on that a minute. Because there's really three periods of time, well, four you can live in, right? There's past, present, future, and eternity. There's four, okay? God wants us to look at the present, what we do right now. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus says, to that exact point. Let the worries of today suffice for themselves, Jesus says. Focus on now. With the end in mind, with the end goal in mind of heaven and eternity, but, you know, what you do at the moment is what is important. Lewis makes the point, and I never thought about this until I've read this chapter this time, actually, that, that the present is where eternity and, um, uh, where eternity meets. It's the only period of time, the present, where you can actually do something that impacts what will happen to you, right? So for example, a lot of people, and this I'm kind of segueing off of here a little bit, but for a lot of people, a lot of people live in the, in the past. Think that's true? We all have a past, right? Everybody has a past. Some people have pasts that are a little more sordid and, and than others. Some people's pasts are abusive or whatever, man. We've all been hurt. We've all, been, we've all done things wrong. We've either done something wrong sinfully or have things done to us. We live in a fallen and broken world. We have all suffered or caused others to suffer. That's across the board for all of us. We all know that. We've all got a past, right? What, can you change the past? You cannot. You can't change it. And people stay stuck there, don't they? They stay stuck, and, and they do. And actually, it only, Lewis doesn't talk about this, but I will, because <laughs> uh, I'm lecturing and I can. Uh, <laughs> Screwtape talks about the past, and he says, you know, in the past, if you think about it, there's only two things you can do with your past. You can, you can live in regret, right? something you've done that you wish you didn't do, right? or, or uh, resentfulness, something that was done to you that shouldn't have been. Right? I mean, seriously, if you think about, I mean, I mean, as far as like you had ice cream, you know, I had, some, I had some vanilla caramel, salted caramel ice cream yesterday. It was a really good experience, right? That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the people that stay stuck in the past. I mean, the past is a burden for you. It's something which challenges you. It keeps you stuck. That really only happens in one of two ways. Either you, um, are, you, are, you live in remorse and regret for something you've done, right? I wish I hadn't done that. I'm like, gosh. The consequences I caused, that stupid mistake, I can't believe I did that. We've all been there and done that, right? I have. Or you live in, in resentfulness, which is someone wronged you and you spend your entire life just furious and fuming and stuck and bitter. And, and all, that, all that, that angst, you know, it, it carries with you. It actually carries with you into the present right now, because I see you nodding your heads. We've all got stuff that's happened to us. It also impacts the future, the decisions you make. Right? Stay with me. So the past is incredibly powerful. What is, Lewis does not talk about this, but I will. What, so if, if the past influences us by two things, resentfulness or regret, what is the only solution to those two things? There's only one. The only solution to resentfulness, how could you do this to me? Or uh, remorse, um, oh, I can't believe I did this. What's the solution for both problems? Forgiveness. Forgive us this day our, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. That's the whole point of Christianity. 
It's not that Jesus is trying to beat you up. He's trying to free you from all the junk that you've done or it's happened to you so that you can live in a way which he's designed you to live. Does that make sense? And so when people talk about forgiveness, it's not, you know, I, I've had somebody, I had somebody a long time ago who wronged me pretty severely and I didn't want to forgive him, right? Because I'm like, I kind of got hung up on it. I'm like, oh, God, had that person do this to me. I got, you know, somebody finally said to me, you know, Rodriguez, I got news for you. That person doesn't care. And they didn't. The only person that lack of forgiveness was hurting was me. And so it's not, you know, and it's so hard to kind of hear, you know, and gosh, forgiveness, that's another whole, we should do a class on forgiveness, I think. But the idea of forgiveness of the past is a, is a crucial, crucial thing. The other, that's the one reason God doesn't want you to live there, right? Forgive and move on, right? The second place where we get stuck is in the future, right? What is the, what is being stuck in the future look like? What do we call that? Worry. Trying to solve a problem which has not yet occurred. And Screwtape says, keep the patient stuck in the past or worried about the future, right? He wants, he, we, he said, Screwtape says in chapter, uh, chapter, paragraph two, he, uh, God, wants them to spend their focus on eternity and the present. The present is the only period of time where you can actually change anything, right? You can't change the past, and the future has not yet occurred. The present, right now, is the only, thing you can, the only place you can actually give someone something, help somebody, love someone. That's the, only, the present is the only period of time where you can do that. Screwtape says in uh, paragraph three, our business as demons is to get them away from the eternal and the present, make them live in the past or make them live in the future. He says, you know, and this is in paragraph uh, four, it looks like. Um, he says, for example, he says, um, uh, we, have, we have encouraged, we, have, we are encouraging, uh, the, his, their, their propaganda department is encouraging we, those to look at all sorts of future-oriented schemes, right? Humanism or communism. Everything which fixes your men's affections on the future. He, and Lewis writes here, and I'll quote it, hence nearly all vices, listen to this, are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love looks to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, and ambition, they all look to the future. Isn't that a great quote? I, I'm, I think uh, those, that, this chapter 15 is pastorally so powerful. If you get, look, we all have worries, right? It's part of living in a fallen world. We all have things we worry about in the future. You know, COVID-19, when do we reopen the church? Does our small business loan come in this week like it's supposed to? Whatever it might be. Anyway, the point that uh, Screwtape is trying to point out is they want, the demons want to keep us stuck in the past and the future. God wants us in the eternity and in the present. So, any observations there? And then I'll move on. Let me, let me look at question number one. Um, so, how does our past keep? Uh, how does our past keep us from living the life that God wants us to live? Well, I think I kind of covered that in pretty good detail. I think we stay either in regret or uh, resentment, and of course, this antidote to both of those conditions is uh, to be, you know is forgiveness. You know, it's, isn't it funny how Jesus always says, uh, your, your sins are forgiven, now go, go, you know, unbind him and let him go, right? Stand up and go and, and, and walk. It's always this action when Christ forgives sins of unbinding somebody from the past, resentment or remorse, right? Guilt and resentment. 
Uh, question number two, how does fear of the future worry? How does fear of the future keep us from living the lives that God wants us to live? Well, I think, well, firstly, if you're so focused on the future that you can't focus on the present, right? Again, the present is the only period of time where you can actually do anything, right? We are temporal beings. We live in time. The only period of time that we can actually influence is the, uh, is the present, and then finally, and we, won't, we don't have time to go into it this morning or this afternoon, but it might be worth you looking at. Jesus actually talks about this worry, right? In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, Jesus says, hey, guys, you know, what are you worried about? What are you, hang on, hang on, shh, time out. What are you worried about? Look at, look at the birds of the air. They, sow, they don't sow and they reap, and yet God provides for them. You know, what are you worried about? If God provides for you, and he has so far, and he's shown you repeatedly, he will care for you. What are you worried about? And it's actually a pretty good question. I say, that to, I say that to people all the time. If you know, you can look back on your own life, right? I can, you can, and see where you were worried about something or scared in the past. God got you here. He got you here, right? Probably bumped and, bumped and bruised, but you're here. And you know what? With the Lord's help, things just kind of shake out, don't they? Not always, it's not always pleasant, but God didn't say life was going to be pleasant. He did say, he did say that he would, he would save us. Not necessarily that life was going to be easy, that's for sure. So any, any comments or questions online there that you guys can throw at me? You may not be there. Yeah, that's right. To worry about something in the future, you may not be there. That's the thing. Lewis says in, in that chapter, says, you know, the one thing you don't want a person to do, Wormwood, the thing you want to most be aware of is a person, you know, makes their plans, says their prayers, and goes to bed. That's the key, right? Trust, put it in the Lord's hands. Because the reality is, you know, who knows, man? I could get nuked, I could get hit by a car driving home tonight or something. Anything can happen, right? Anything can happen. You can, you can live your life in fear and worry, or you can be like, you know what, Lord? You've got this one, and I'm just going to have to, I'm just going to trudge along and do my best, and hopefully uh, in the present make the right decisions. Right? Pray for the daily grace to do the right thing. That's the key to the Christian walk. Humility and praying for the hourly grace to make the right decision. All right, how are we doing on time? Um, about 20 minutes left. So, letter 16. Uh, this, one I, <laughs> this one was fun for me. Uh, this is about church. He says, uh, Screwtape uh, counsels Wormwood on the value of church shopping. Anybody know what church shopping is? Church shopping is going hither and yon, bouncing around, trying to find a church that just fits you right. Now, I will, I will, I will admit, part of me, I mean, I've, we all fall into this trap, but one of the interesting things, Screwtape says, look, if you, if you can't stop somebody from going to church, I've always loved this, make them a connoisseur of churches. Well, why do you want to be a What is a connoisseur? A connoisseur is somebody who's sampled all sorts of things and then uses their own judgment to determine what's the very best one. Well, that's actually rooted in the cardinal sin, which is pride. Interesting, you may not know this, if you're new to being an Anglican, um, or if you're just online and you're not an Anglican at all, uh, one, our, our churches operate historically on something called a parochial system, meaning that there are parishes, right? And a parish is a geographical area. And that geographical area is serviced by a church. So for example, Trinity Episcopal Church has a parish. Uh, St. Augustine's, which is another Episcopal church in Vero Beach, their parish is out west of town. If you live, the, the, the idea is, if you live in that town, you go to that parish church, right? 
The Church of England is laid, all Anglican churches are laid out this way. Uh, Roman Catholic churches are laid out this way. Orthodox churches are laid out this way. And there's really re there's real wisdom in that because what it does is it forces people of all different backgrounds into the same environment, right? I mean, what would be worse than finding, going to a church to find people who are just like you? How boring would that be, firstly? And secondly, how could you possibly grow? I mean, I, 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 I got nothing to as far as, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an Anglican, I believe in the parochial system that you, the, it, because it fights this, this idea we have in our hearts of trying to find the right church for me. Because by doing that, what you're actually saying is, I know better. I'm picking the flavor that I like. Now, I will, I will caveat that. I do think if you're in a church which is not preaching scripturally true, and actually, uh, Lewis goes into this with those two priests, uh, uh, the one priest who doesn't even believe any of this stuff anymore, and the other guy, he calls him Father Spike. Spike is a pejorative term for Anglo-Catholic or high churchman in the Church of England. Uh, Somebody called me a spike once. It's probably true. Um, but in any event, uh, <laughs> but the idea is that there's these parties in the Church of England, the high church party, the low church party, and, you know, whatever. But the idea is um, uh, if there's somebody who is not preaching the truth of the gospel, right, the whole thing, if you're not preaching the truth of the gospel, then you probably shouldn't be going there. But provided that somebody, that the, the, the gospel is being preached truly, then you should, be, you should be going to whatever church you attend that's local. Make sense? Um, so, what is, so here's a couple of questions. What is, the danger, uh, what is the danger of finding the perfect church? Is there such a thing? No, no there's not. There's not. Well, there is, actually, there is one, and it's not here yet, but it will be, right? It's right, in heaven, when, the, and when, when the heaven and earth are reunited, when Christ returns, then we'll have the perfect church. Until then, uh, we do the best we can, you know? This coming Sunday is Good Shepherd Sunday, and I made a comment last week to somebody that I'm a, uh, Jesus is the good shepherd, I'm a, I'm a passable shepherd on a really good day, right? So the whole point is, we, what we do here, what we do here is a, an approximation, literally an approximation of what the real, the perfect church will look like, right? Where we, where we try to be a, a, as broad as we can in welcoming people of all different varieties here, uh, preaching the truth of the gospel, and living the, the Christian life as, a, as the body of Christ, literally waiting for Christ to return and fix this whole thing. So what is the danger of finding the perfect church? There isn't such a thing, and you will always be disappointed. You ever met somebody who's, who spends their whole Christian walk going from church to church? I have. Father, I'm not being fed there. Father, I'm not being fed here. Well, okay. Uh, I'm, you know, when, the minute you say that, the minute somebody is a, a, a connoisseur of churches, their heart is not in the right spot. Um... Question number two, Ch church hopping is as prevalent today as it was in C.S. Lewis's time. Here's a question. Do you think that churches today cater to a consumer mentality? I think so too, largely, right? Uh, one, of the reasons that we, one of the reasons we do things the way we do here at Trinity Vero is that idea of catering to a consumer mentality terrifies me. And, and quite honestly, it's probably something if I wasn't careful I would fall into. Um, that is why I'm always leaning on how has the church always done this? I want to be grounded in something which is bigger than myself. 
I want to be grounded in something which is not dependent upon the personality of the rector, right? I am a sinful, fallen, broken man, and someday I'll be dead, right? So uh, if you're putting your faith in me, then you're betting on the wrong horse. I'm always trying to, I'm always here at Trinity trying to move our worship in the direction of what the church has always done, rather than what's the church of what's happening now. Make sense? Um, anybody else have any, have any, yeah, Paul, what do you think? Okay. Right, you're, well, that's a good point. So Paul, Paul makes a very good point. He says that, that when you have a, I think Lewis uses the term a coterie, right? A, a party, a group of people that are just like me. It becomes a club. And the danger with a club or a coterie is it's all self-referencing, right? So it's self-affirming. It's always, you know, how do you grow in that? I mean, could you imagine being, I mean, nothing would be worse for me than to be around people like me all day long. How boring would that be, Right. I want to meet people like, like Paul, who's a military strategist, or, or Marilyn, who's a judge, or whomever, you know, uh, that does all these cool things. that I have no idea what that's like, but I can learn from them. That's the whole cool thing about being in a church. You know, I, I was saying to Father Gritter this just yesterday. You know, one of the things I love about this parish is that we've got people in this parish that are, are billionaires, literally, and people that are, are both parents working and on really low income. We've got both, and, and that's just one measure of all sorts of different things of people that come here. And that, that actually makes me feel good to know that these people come together and worship Jesus together even though they're very, very different. That's just a really cool thing. That makes me be encouraged that what we're doing here at least is the right thing in, in that perspective. Okay, um, chapter 17 or chapter 8? We'll do 17. Yes, Marilyn, real quick. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I mean, about this whole idea of a church that's just like me. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is we all do self-select where we go to church, right? They do. We do. People, there are a lot of people that have left this church because of the rector. <laughs> people do. I mean, that's okay. It's, the, it's all right. I mean, but the, the thing I think the danger is if you're going to a place because everybody's just like me, that's just, that's, there's a danger in that because then how do you grow? You know what I mean? Okay, uh... Letter number 17, I didn't find this one all that helpful, I'll be honest with you, but let's just dive through it real quick. He talks about gluttony, the sin of gluttony. Gluttony, I've never, I mean, I've been called a glutton as a joke. No one's ever called me a glutton in any serious way. Does anybody think that gluttony is a serious problem in, in society? In terms of the idea of overeating, I would say, well, maybe it is actually. Maybe so. Um, but the one thing which I thought was interesting about this, this chapter, again, was that uh, this idea of gluttony of... Uh, delicacy, he calls it, right? Being particular. Where does that actually come from? Well, he mentions, he mentions the patient's mother, and he says how she wants the, the teensiest, weensiest bit of perfectly toasted bread and a little, uh, this small cup of tea, whatever. And Scrutay says, says something really, really insightful there. He says, you know, the problem is not so much that she wants these things, but that she's so miserable in her present estate that she looks back to other things the way they were and yearns for that comfort. I thought that was really insightful. And, and I wonder if sometimes, I mean, this is a tricky one. I, mean, I didn't find this letter all that helpful. Maybe you did. But letter 17, where we focus on what we eat to be essentially prideful, right? Well, I don't eat GMO milk or I don't, you know, I only eat, you know, organic or whatever. I mean, fine. Even when you eat organic food, that's fine. Nothing wrong with eating organic food. But if you're doing different things as a mark of the fact that you know better than everybody else, eh, it could be a little dangerous, right? Or, I don't know. 
Anybody have any thoughts on, on 17? Um, I didn't, again, I didn't find this one to be all that really helpful. What's that? Greed and gluttony are kissing cousins? Oh, absolutely. The toilet paper crisis, right? A toilet paper gluttoned. Boy, Lord have mercy. How do we as a culture become gluttonous of toilet paper? Lack of, I guess, and pro, right, and fear. It's exactly what it is. Self, lack of self, just put in fear. Yeah, yeah, and actually, that's a good point. I mean, Marilyn made the comment, and I think you were sort of alluding to it, was that gluttony is a mark of a lack of self-discipline, right? Which actually, if you're made in God's image, and he's in, and then that's actually kind of uh, not treating yourself with the respect that God wants you to treat. Because you belong to him, right? You're not your own. He was, you were paid, paid, by, uh, paid for the price. That's it. Father Gritter, what do you think? There's that great... Um... That's a good point. So um, as far as virtue and self-control, self-control with food, for example, but there's lots of, I mean, sex, food, money, all those things. Self-control is an opportunity for you to learn to, you know, tame the carnal lusts, as one of the old Anglican uh, divines would say. You know, it's an idea, it's a way to train yourself in righteousness, to learn to subdue your body and do what God would have you do with it, right? You are in a battle between the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, there's the world, money, there's the flesh, which is this, gluttony, and the devil, who is kind of behind all of it. So, uh, that's, again, you know, that's, that's an interesting point. Maybe next Lent we'll do a series on, on the seven deadly sins or something, and the idea of how these sins uh, impact our lives and our faith as Christians, and why virtue and wrestling with gluttony or avarice or lust or whatever they are, my, all the big seven deadlies, um, seven deadly sins, why, they're, why that's so important. Because nobody really thinks about that anymore, do they? All right, so that's, that's number, number eight. Um, Letter number eight, Screwtape explains that God, uh, God's standard for human sexuality is either abstinence or monogamy. Um, Screwtape explains, I think this is so powerful. He says, Screwtape explains that heaven and earth, sorry, heaven and hell, see interactions between two beings in radically different ways. This is really insightful uh, in terms of friendship and marriage, I think. He, he says, hell sees relationships between beings as a, ma- a matter of consumption predator and prey, right? So for example, if you remember back to earlier in the Screwtape letters, um, Screwtape says to Wormwood, you're not, basically you're, you're giddy because you've had the, the first sip of the taste of the struggle of a human soul, right? Humans are food to demons, right? They are meant to be consumed. They are, it is, it is a consumption of another being, which is hell's view of a relationship, right? Humans do that too. I'll get to that in a second. He says, but heaven sees mutual upbuilding and strengthening as the, even at the expense of oneself. Just, just a couple of days ago, I was talking to a couple um, about marriage. And I said, you know, it's interesting. The world, meaning just the culture we live in, and the church have two radically different views of marriage. Um, one is, uh, in, the, in the world, oftentimes, marriage is looked at as a consumer thing. Right? And, and, and people are like, oh, I don't do that. Well, yeah, kind of everybody does do that. You say, why do you marry somebody? I, mean, I do this with anybody who comes to me to get married in marriage counseling. The first question I ask him is, so, Mary, why do you want to get married to, to Bob? He makes me laugh, or whatever she says. And then, Bob, why do you want to get married to Mary? Usually he says, because she's hot. But he might also say, she's smart, or she's this, or whatever. And, but, but they always, always, without fail, 
say something which references their own need, right? And we all, we all do it. But think about it. Every person, you, if, you, without, if you don't think about this ahead of time and you don't have a priest to counsel you in this, people, the culture we live in sees marriage, and even friendships for that matter, as a, in a consumerist way. What does this person do for me, right? I think that's true. I mean, and then, because then, when that person can't do for you anymore what you wanted them to do, what happens? Sayonara. That is, that is and that's what Screwtape is saying here. This is, the, this is hell's view of relationships. It's a consumer thing. By contrast, if, you know, if you've ever come to me for marriage counseling or premarital counseling or whatever, I will say to you, a Christian marriage is all about something radically different. And that is, when you are married as a Christian, you are pledging your life to that person. In other words, my life is now devoted. When I married my wife Kathleen uh, 23 years ago, and change right around there, uh, when we got married, I actually made a vow that my entire life was going to be uh, lived to make her become the best Christian she can be. Right? And vice versa. And that means that marriage and love is not a matter of me consuming something. It's actually the exact opposite. It is pouring into somebody else, just like God does with us, right? Just like the Trinity does with itself. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. It's all this mutual upbuilding. That's what, that's what Christian relationships, marriage, friendships are all about. The demonic is the other, the other way, right? Um, is, is this consumerist idea. So if you've fallen into that, and you, we all have in some way, right, this consumerist idea of relationships, you know, don't be surprised, because that's the way the culture and the world works. And if you're not trained in how to, to see that, you won't see it. But what Screwtape is reminding us today is that this, this um, consumerist versus, um, uh, versus uh, 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 upbuilding uh, nature of relationships is the key between hell and heaven's view of marriage and, I would extend, even, even friendships. So um, that's all we've got. So uh, we talked about the well, I pretty much covered all three questions. Oh, one thing, one thing I, I, I do want to say, sex outside of marriage. Everybody says, why does God get so hung up on that? Why is it such a big deal, right? Particularly in our culture where pretty much, you know, anything goes for the most part. Why is that such, why is that such an issue? Scripture actually says this, and Lewis makes the point here. Lewis says here that whenever uh, sex occurs between a man and a woman, whether, and this is a quote, whether they like it or not, this is actually a really cool thing to think about. A transcendental relationship is set up between them, which must be either internally, eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. No one told me that in college. <laughs> no one talks about this stuff. As, but that's the, the, the key. Why God, again, why God always does things for us in, our, in, in terms of our, our lives with everything is to protect us from ourselves. And what he's saying is, look, sex outside of marriage, before marriage, outside of marriage, you, whenever that occurs between two people, you are setting up a relationship between them, a bond, Scripture says, which can't be broken. And so you are, you are either having to eternally enjoy it, eternally enjoy it, or eternally endure it. And that's why Scripture is so, um, uh, so, speaks so clearly about um, sex belonging between a man and woman in holy matrimony. Ending on an odd note, <laughs> that's kind of a strange one. Uh, any comments or questions from anybody? Anything online we've got to, to deal with? Any, uh, anybody, yes? That's right, and, and, you know, and that's a good point too. Uh, Paul lays out 
that the marriage between a man and a woman is like is a metaphor for the relationship between Christ and his church. Whew, think about that one. So in other words, uh, the idea is that Christ gives himself to the church for the upbuilding of the church, right? That's us. Just like in, in a Christian marriage, you are called to be giving of each other for the benefit and the betterment of the other. And in fact, by the way, I, when I was first married, Kathy and I, we got some really good marital advice in this, with this very point from a priest friend of mine, uh, Father Moyer. He said, you know, if you live your married life according to the biblical standard of pouring into the other person constantly, and again, usually in a marriage, one person does it more than the other at varying times, but the idea being, if you're intentional and deliberate about that, your marriage will flourish. And, and when you forget that, and you're not reminded of it, uh, is when things can go haywire. And, that's, and that, was, that was very good advice. So uh, I'll leave that with you, which is good advice given to me by a very wise priest, which has been uh, beneficial to me. So this has been odd, but fun. <laughs> Talking to an empty room with a bunch of cameras and lights here. But uh, anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this online. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you all for being here. We'll close in prayer, but before we do that, uh, next week we'll be doing uh, chapters 19 through 23. So uh, please go ahead and read those ahead of time and come prepared with some questions. You can put them online. You can text them if you want to ahead of time. The phone number the, uh, the, for the text is on the website, and uh, we'll, have, we'll answer those questions next week. So anything else? We've got two minutes. Nothing? All right, let's uh, close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this time together. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being here with one another. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to, uh, to talk about Jesus and C.S. Lewis's writing about the power of his uh, working in our lives. Lord, give us the strength to do the right thing. Give us the courage to trust you in all things. And uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, thank you very much. God bless you all, and have a great, uh, great rest of the week.